Well, good morning again, Living Hope Columbus friends, family. So glad you're tuning in today. I want to remind us of this truth as I have the past couple weeks, that the gospel is resilient, the word of God cannot be stopped, and we have seen over and over that the church is alive and the church is well. My name is Aaron. I serve as the teaching pastor here at Living Hope Columbus, and we are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. Grab your Bible, uh, grab a notebook, a pen if you are a note taker. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This morning we're going to talk quickly on a, a subject that I've titled, The Odds Are On David. The odds are on David. I want to remind us real quick as well as a church family, we're always looking for opportunities during this uh, strange and unique season of ministry. Uh, to ensure that we're bringing you good content to connect you with the Word of God, but also to bring families together. And so next Sunday, Palm Sunday, April 5th, at 5.15 p.m., we're doing for the first time, we're going to try it, what we are calling a virtual uh, family cookout. And so we're going to connect with each other over different media platforms, Zoom, Facebook, and YouTube. And we're encouraging you, if your family get together, have a cookout uh, over those platforms. We're going to provide games and activities for you, uh, really just for us to connect as a church family in a very unique fashion. And so should be a really good time, should be fun, something completely different. We've never done it before. And so we are going to give it a shot. That's next Sunday at 5.15. First Samuel chapter 17, if you have a copy of God's Word. If you will stand with me in honor of reading it, whether you are in your living room, if you're driving and listening, don't stand up. Uh, go ahead and remain seated there. But 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45 through 49, and God's word says this, that David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, and you have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Aren't you glad you tuned in today? Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you again for this time we have together this morning as your church, as the body of Christ. And Father, I pray now as we dive into your word, Lord, and as we talk on this subject of the odds are on David, that your spirit would meet us wherever we are today. Father, your spirit would be among us. Your spirit would teach us, draw us closer to Christ. May Jesus be exalted and be lifted high wherever we are. Father, may you move among your people today. Give us the hearts, the, the ears we need to hear, the hearts we need to receive your word, and the hands and feet to be Jesus to people this week. Father, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, you, uh, if you've been in my ministry for any length of time, you know that I love little stories to illustrate big truth. I was reading a story this week that I just absolutely loved of a five-year-old little boy who was in the kitchen helping his mom make dinner. And she simply asked him to go into the pantry and grab her one can of tomato soup. Well, the boy was very reluctant to that request from his mother. And she, he said, it's dark in there and I'm scared. I don't want to do it. Well, she asked him again just to get that can of tomato soup. And he said, Mom, but it's so dark and I'm so scared and I would prefer not to do it. Well, the mom, trying to use this as a teaching moment, uh, told her son, it's okay. You can go in there because Jesus will be with you. Well, hesitantly, he walked towards that pantry, opened the door incredibly slowly, peeked his head in, became afraid, closed the door, and as he was walking away, he had a real simple idea. 
He opened that door back in where it was dark. He couldn't reach the light switch. And he peeked his head into the pantry and he said these words. Hey, Jesus, if you're in there, will you hand me the can of tomato soup? I love that story. Because that story really illustrates a a simple truth for us today that I want us to wrap our heads around. And it's really a couple things. First is this, that, that fear can be a good thing in our lives. In a culture right now where we are so fearful... We're so fearful of so many things going on culturally. One thing we need to understand is that sometimes fear is a good thing because fear can serve as God's provision for us. When fear is properly controlled, it protects us from harm, but also fear then can motivate us to positive action. Fear can be a pretty good thing in our lives. But the problem is, is when fear goes uncontrolled because then what happens is fear then locks us into an emotional prison. Fear locks us up, stunts our personal and spiritual growth, and really hinders all productivity that we have in this life. You see, friends, if we're not careful, fear can leave this dark, gloomy cloud over us that will ultimately cripple us. And the problem with fear, and really this is where I want us to to camp this morning, is that when we think of fear, the problem is, is we often think that there are things in this life that are under our control. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, I think one thing that we need to realize and remind ourselves of is this, is that everything is actually out of our control, but it's in God's control. You see, we we want so many things in our life to be in our control, but the reality is, is, is nothing is in our control. God is sovereign over all things. Therefore, he is in control of everything. And when we understand that truth, it motivates us to live a life that is completely dependent and trust-filled upon Jesus. You see, friends, when we begin to understand that nothing in this life is under our control, we'll then begin to understand the truth of what it really means to fully trust in Jesus. And I want us to look at this familiar story in 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. You probably heard this if you grew up in church. Maybe you're familiar with this. If you've taught Sunday school, your children have maybe heard this story before. We see a young man named David who was not fearless out of stupidity. You see, I don't think God ever calls us to reckless action. That's not fearlessness. Instead, David has a fearlessness that is based on his dependency upon God and his right understanding of what it means to fear God. This is one of the most beloved stories in all the Old Testament. We love stories of the underdog who defeats the bully. The guy who didn't stand a chance, but God intervenes and changes the outcome of the story. And we like to take this story, you've probably heard it before, where we say, well, when the odds are stacked against you, God will give you the victory. Sometimes we've heard maybe this used where people will say, what giants stand in your way? God wants you to defeat those giants. If David defeated Goliath, you can defeat your giant. See, but the the issue with that, the problem with that is this isn't a story about David. This isn't even a story about a Philistine named Goliath. This isn't a story about human effort or contagious courage. This is not a story about conquering giants in your life. Instead, this is a story of an all-powerful God who used a young man who was willing to trust him. You see, this story is not about David. It's not about Goliath. Rather, this story is completely and totally about God and how powerful our God is. I don't want us to miss this as well, that this is also a unique story in Scripture. 
The way that this story was written down was meant to pump you up and to get you amped up about what's going on here. There's a reason it's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. And here's how we know this. Look, Samuel, when he was penning these words and writing this uh, account of David and Goliath, notice a couple things here. In the original Hebrew, this chapter in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 17, has 912 different words. That is the longest account in all of the Old Testament of David fighting a foreign enemy. All the other ones are much shorter than this. This one has nearly a thousand words to describe this battle. This battle right here has more direct quotations than any other battle found in the Old Testament in which David fought. So Samuel's writing down a lot of direct quotes that were were heard here. In this battle, we see tons of references to the height of people, the weight of people, how big they were, numbers of food rations, specifics of the terrain and the land, so many things, uh, so many details in this writing. Why do they do that? Because Samuel wanted to draw us into this story. He wanted it to catch our attention, and he wanted us to remember the outcome. He wanted us not to forget how powerful God is and show us what it looks like to trust him completely. Let's look at our passage here, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at, uh, really walk through this, this chapter quickly. I'm going to reference some things real fast. We've seen the Canaanites before in Scripture. These were uh, a group of people living in the land of Canaan that God had promised to the nation of Israel. Israel had fought these people several times throughout history. And God had commanded Israel to drive out the inhabitants of this land and claim it for their own because God had promised this land to them for generations. The problem was the Philistines were a very strong people. They controlled popular trade routes. They were incredibly powerful, really had advanced military abilities. The battle of of Elah here where we see uh, in verse 3. This was an interesting place because it was really found in between these two large mountains. And right in the middle of this valley was what was known as a wadi. This was a place that during the rainy season would actually be full of water all the time. But now it was the dry season, meaning that this was a pretty rocky and rough terrain. It's the reason that Goliath wanted to have a one-on-one battle because it was hard to fight the way that they did in this kind of terrain. And so the scripture says in verse 16... That every day that Goliath would come out from the ranks of of the Philistine army. And for 40 days he was echoing threats to the nation of Israel. Looking for this battle of champions. This one-on-one fight with somebody from Israel's army. But notice the intimidating nature of Goliath here. Here's what's interesting too. This is the longest description in any place in the Old Testament of military attire. is found here in 1 Samuel 17. Notice a couple things. First off, how is Goliath described? The Bible says in verse 4, he's 9 feet 9 inches tall. He's a giant. Friends, Goliath could dunk a basketball without even jumping, right? He, he could just like barely trot off and like grab the rim with his teeth if he wanted to. That's how tall Goliath was. Verse 5 says that he was wearing a bronze helmet and armor that weighed 125 pounds. Here's a fun fact for you. That's the same weight as 567 blueberry muffins. Don't ask me how I know that. I just know things, all right? That's heavy, heavy armor. Verse 6 says that he had a a bronze javelin that was uh, slung between his shoulders. Verse 7 said he has a spear the size of a weaver's beam. That would mean it's about 2 inches thick and 10 to 12 feet long. That's huge. The tip of his spear had a, a tip on it that weighed 15 pounds. To put that in perspective for you, that's the same weight as three two liters of Pepsi. Again, don't ask how I know these things. I just, I just know certain things. There's a very valid reason. Why Israel was terrified of Goliath, because he was an impressive human. 
And so there was this psychological thing going on for Israel of we can't fight this human of superhuman proportions in this kind of terrain. We just don't have the ability to do a battle just like this. And for 40 days, we read in these verses that Goliath echoed threats against Israel and defamed the name of God. But Israel wouldn't make a move. And then the story shifts. A few points for us today. Point number one is this. We see an unlikely shepherd step up. An unlikely shepherd. If you were to jump back one chapter to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you'd see the Bible describes King Saul, the king of Israel at this time, as one who had a, a quote, distressing spirit that was bothering him. And Saul was advised by some of his, his people that he needed to have a musician come and play for him on a regular basis because maybe that would calm him. Verse 18 of 1 Samuel 16 says that he called upon David, who was a, a skillful, skillful musician, to play for him. And because of that, Saul ended up making David his armor bearer. He was the guy that would help carry some of the armor for King Saul as Saul went into battle. Why is that important? Because when we arrive to chapter 17, David still served in that position. He was tending his father's flocks. That's part of what he did. He would bring food rations to his brothers. That was part of what he did. But also he was King Saul's armor bearer. And so every day David would make this 15-mile journey back home and come back to the battlefield, back and forth, back and forth, doing what he was supposed to do, checking on his brothers, doing things for King Saul and tending to his father's flocks. But one day when David arrives to the battlefield, he sees Goliath down there in the valley echoing threats to Israel and also to God. And so David asks two questions in verse 26. The first thing he says is, what's the reward for whoever takes this guy out? And secondly, David asks, and this is an important question here. He says, who is this guy that he has the audacity to echo threats against our God? You see, word had spread around the Israel camp that if somebody would step up to the plate and actually fight Goliath, that the king was offering riches beyond belief, one of his daughters as a wife, and no taxes for the, person, the rest of the person's life. Like This was a good deal for whoever was going to go and fight Goliath on behalf of the nation. But nobody was willing to step up because Goliath was too much until David shows up on the scene. I think it's also interesting that we read in, in this chapter in verse 28, that one of David's older brothers actually tells David, like, go home, David. Go tend to the sheep. We don't need your help. We'll take care of this on our own. Leave the fighting to the men. Why? Because David was just an unlikely shepherd. He was just a young guy. Who was he to come and fight on behalf of the nation? But David, what did he do? He continued to press. And we see an unlikely shepherd turn into an unlikely warrior. An unlikely warrior. You see, word gets back to King Saul that maybe there's somebody that's up to the task of fighting Goliath. Chapter 17, verse 31 says this, that what David said was overheard, and it was reported to King Saul. So he had David brought to him. Saul tells David in verse 33, you can't fight the Philistine because you're too young. This is where we get that picture of like this 12-year-old kid coming to the king of Israel to come and fight this giant. That's not what's going on in this story. We see in chapter 16 that David was actually described as a man of valor. David at this point was probably 18, 19 years old at the time. He was grown up. He was a man at this point. The problem was David wasn't old enough to serve in the Israelite army. Numbers 1-3 says that you had to be 20 years old in order to serve in the army of Israel. 
So this was not an attack from King Saul on David's physical size. Rather, it was David's age as to why he couldn't fight in the army. Saul's second concern is, David, you've never trained for this. We've got all these warriors around us that have, have been training for years. But David, you have no kind of military ability or skill. Goliath had trained since he was a child. David, you are simply a shepherd. But David believed so much so in what he was called to do. He was fearless in what God had called him to do. That David persisted. And look at what he tells Saul in chapter 17, verses 34 through 37. I'm going to glance through this quick. He says, your servant has been tending your father's sheep. Saul, you're right. That's what I've been doing. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from my flock, David says, I went after it, I struck it down, and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. I'll be honest with you. Bear comes, takes my dogs, he can have it, all right? David chased them down. He said, if it reared up against me, so now the bear's getting angry, David says, I grabbed its fur. Y'all hearing this? I grabbed its fur, I struck it down, and I killed it. He says, your servant, I've killed lions, I've killed bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine is just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who rescued me, again, remember, this is a story about God, not David. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he's going to rescue me from the Philistine as well. What does David say? David says, I'm the Chuck Norris of the Old Testament, King Saul. I'm not afraid of a bear. I'm not afraid of a lion. I've chased him. I've beat him. And I've killed him. And Goliath is going to be no different. He has defied my God. And I am going to stand up for the name of my God. Friends, can I remind us? Here's a really good truth for us to remember today. Let God's past faithfulness inform your present situation. Let God's faithfulness in who he has always been inform how you perceive what, it, how, what he is doing right now. God does not change. In the midst of chaos, he's still the good God he was four weeks ago when everything still seemed okay. And right now he has not changed. He is still faithful. Verse 37 says, Saul gave David the blessing to go fight on behalf of Israel. Here's what's so interesting to me. In verse 9, the rules of engagement were laid out. One-on-one -on -one battle, nation versus nation, person versus person. Whoever lost would become the slave of the other nation. Those were the rules of engagement. So by Saul allowing David to fight on behalf of Israel, I believe that Saul thought David could win. You see, David wasn't a little boy, folks. David was a man, and David had some skill, and Saul knew it. It says that King Saul put on his armor on David. David took it off, not because he was a little guy that it didn't fit him. It just didn't fit David. It wasn't his size, right? This was King Saul's armor. It wasn't fitted specifically for David. So what does David do? He grabs his slingshot and some stones. Why? Those are weapons that God had allowed him to use in the past. Y'all, this is not some little boy with a cracker barrel slingshot and a couple rocks from his driveway. David's a bad dude. He's got a, a big old sling. He goes down into the wadi, the Bible says in verse 40, and grabs five smooth stones. History tells us this, that those stones were not pebbles from your driveway. They would have been the size of approximately a tennis ball. So David has his sling, he has five tennis ball-sized stones, and he heads to go and fight Goliath. Why five? I'm not sure. Maybe it was going to take two. David approaches Goliath. David gets mocked because of his age. You're just a boy. And I love, Goliath says to him in verse 43 and 44, 
He said, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? And then he cursed David by his gods. And then he says to David, come here. If you've ever seen Mortal Kombat, that's what I picture here, the Mortal Kombat video game, come here. And I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts. And then David responds in verse 45 through 47. He says, Goliath, you got a spear and a sword and a javelin, but you know what I got? Jesus, back up. In those, man, in those three verses, 45 through 47, you know that David acknowledges the power of God six different times? Three verses, six times he acknowledges God before Goliath. Why? Because he knew the battle was God's, not his own. Hey, can I remind us of another truth today? That you have the ability as a follower of Jesus to point your heart back to dependency upon God. How do I do that? I remind myself of who my God is. When my heart wants to push me towards fear and uncertainty, when my heart wants to to drag me into feelings that I shouldn't feel, I have the ability as a follower of Jesus to redirect my heart back towards truth. How do I do that? I get myself in the word of God, remind myself who my God is, and I tell my heart that fear is not real, that uncertainty is not real, but the truth of my God is real. And that's what we're going to believe in this moment. Verse 48 says, that Goliath begins to run towards David. Why does he do that? Because Goliath has a spear and a javelin and a sword. So he only has items that are used for close combat. David, on the other hand, has items he can use from a far distance. Actually, if you uh, study history, it's actually said that these guys that would use these slings and stones could throw these things up to 200 yards at 60 miles an hour. Folks, David was a bad dude. And as Goliath begins to run towards him, David takes his sling, hurls one of those stones at Goliath's head. That stone hits him in the center of the head, sinks into his skull, and Goliath falls face first into the ground. And as an act of victory, what does David do? He takes Goliath's own sword and chops off Goliath's head. I don't know about you, but I haven't heard this part in Sunday school before. Like, this isn't something that we paint on the kids' ministry wall story of David and Goliath with Goliath laying there headless in the corner, right? This is, this is crazy. Then Israel pursues the Philistines. They take the victory. What's the moral of the story? It's not what giants do you have to defeat. The moral of the story is not underdogs can win if they believe enough. The moral of the story is not if you believe it, you can achieve it. It's none of those. Friends, remember, this isn't a story about David. It's not about Saul. It's not about Israel. It's not about Goliath. Sometimes we want to implant ourselves into these Old Testament stories, and that's not what God intended us to do. As Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas, said years ago, if we're anybody in this story, we're the Israelite army standing in the corner shaking in our boots because we're scared of what's in front of us. That's who we are if we're anybody. Here's what this story shows us. Point number three, it shows us an unlikely Savior. An unlikely Savior. Because this story is a picture of Jesus. It's a symbolic picture of Jesus. It it reminds me to keep my attention on the vastness of my God, not the false fear that is painted before me. It reminds me that because Jesus is big, my fears can be small. It reminds me that, that in my worry that Jesus is bigger It reminds me that in my uncertainty, Jesus is bigger. It reminds me that when things around me are out of control, Jesus is still in control. He is still seated on his throne and he hasn't moved. Jesus is in control. 
This is a story showing us that God is in complete control of all things at all times, and he's just looking for some unlikely people who are willing to believe that truth. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. Because just like Israel had a bigger problem than they could handle, you know we do too? It's called sin. Sin is that, that thing that we just cannot defeat. And we need the unlikely Savior to step in our place and handle it for us. Insert Jesus. Jesus steps in on our behalf when we're standing scared in the corner, if anything. And he steps in and takes care of the sin problem that we can't take care of on our own. You see, when things seem hopeless, the unexpected Savior arrives. That's Jesus. He's mocked. He's criticized. He doesn't do things the conventional way, the way people would have expected him to do it. No, what did Jesus do? He would paid the sin debt for all humanity God's way, even when we didn't understand it at the time. And when it didn't seem like victory was going to happen, in steps Jesus, and we're invited into a relationship with our God. Just like David brought victory for Israel, Jesus brought total victory for us for all eternity. And if Jesus can defeat my sin problem, guess what? Let's go back to the beginning. Then I have to be completely dependent upon him. Because that's the biggest struggle I have, is sin. The biggest struggle I have is I'm separated from God for all eternity, and I need somebody to step in my place and take care of it for me. In steps Jesus. i got to be completely dependent upon him. Hey, two application, application questions for us to think about today. Are you like Israel? Are you constantly worried in this season in which we are as a nation, a culture, as communities? Are you constantly in fear over things? That, let's be real. We can't control them. Are you like Israel? Or will we choose to, to be like David, who believed God was big? God was bigger. Therefore, he could trust him completely because he's already invited us into a relationship with him. I want to close with this story that happened in my family last night. I think this really helps bring things together. At dinner, we're sitting around the dinner table and we're, we're having a meal as a family. And we began talking about what I was going to speak on today about fear. And we began talking to our daughters about fear and things that they feared. And my wife said that my youngest daughter, who's two, is fearful of spiders. She's deathly afraid of them. If my youngest daughter sees a spider, I mean, she will shriek and she will run and it's just chaos in our house. It's not a good situation. And so my wife, what she did jokingly, is our, little, our daughters were sitting at their little kitchen table and my, daughter, my wife took her hand out and she made a small little kind of open fist and she said, hey Colby, mommy's got a spider in her hand, you want to see it? You know what my two-year-old daughter did in that moment? She didn't run. She didn't run. She didn't scream. Instead, my two-year-old daughter got up from her chair and with absolute confidence walked over to where my wife was seated and said, yeah, open your hand, Mom. I want to see the spider. To which my wife jokingly opened and said, well, I don't have one. Colby walked off and giggled. What's the point of that story? My daughter's biggest fear in the world is spiders. But when she knew her fear was in the hand of her mother, it didn't scare her anymore. She wasn't afraid anymore. Because her fear, she understood, was in, in the hand of, of the person she trusts most in the world. That's her mom. She was not afraid anymore. Because her confidence and trust in her mom was bigger than the fear that she typically has. Friends, here's our truth today, that if you're a follower of Jesus, we're invited into that. 
That because God has defeated my sin problem and I can trust him then for anything, I can trust him completely, be fully dependent upon him. As the song goes, whom shall I fear? The God of angel armies is on my side. And I don't think there's a better way that we could end this message today than by taking communion. We're not gathered together in this moment. We're scattered all over the place. But I don't think there's a better way we could end this, this discussion on, on fear and the vastness and bigness of Jesus than taking communion. If you've never done this with us before, I encourage you right now, I mean, run into your kitchen if you haven't already, grab some, some sort of bread or some crackers, grab some sort of juice or, or water. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is at all. And let's, let's, let's identify with Jesus here in this moment. Let me read you a scripture real quick. 1 Corinthians 10. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is, is, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? It's talking about the juice that we drink in this moment. The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, and we who are many are one body, since all of us share one bread. What's Paul's point in that scripture? That although we're separated, we're united by this. Although we're scattered, we're united by the sacrifice of Jesus. We identify as followers of Jesus. It's why, although we're separate, we can still trust him. Because he proved himself on a cross. You know, I was thinking this, this past week that as, as, as just humans, we identify with so many different groups. You probably have a, a place where you work, and that's part of your identity. Maybe you have a gym that you go to, and that's part of your identity. Maybe you're part of a social club of some kind, and that's part of your identity. All over the place, we're identifying with people all the time, different groups of people. But for the Christian, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, which we'll do here in just a moment, it's no different. We're choosing to identify with the local church and to identify with Jesus together. Let me explain this to you if you've never done this with us before. When we do the Lord's Supper, it's where we're going to corporately in just a moment eat a small cracker, a piece of bread, whatever you have. And then we're also going to be drinking a little bit of juice or water, whatever you have. It doesn't matter what it is. And when we eat that little piece of cracker or bread, that's that, that symbolic reminder for us in that moment that on a cross that Jesus' body was broken to pay the sin debt that we owed so that I could trust him completely. When we drink that juice, it's a reminder that there was blood shed on that cross, that with the shedding of blood, that sins were eradicated forever when we put our faith in Jesus. Therefore, I can trust Jesus completely. And as we do these things, it's a reminder of the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And although we're scattered, we're united by this. We're together in this. And Paul reminds us by sharing in those two verses I just read that we're identifying with the body of Christ. Not just living hope Columbus, but literally believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus all over the world. I encourage you now, so go ahead and take out that piece of bread, whatever you have, a goldfish cracker, a pizza crust, whatever it looks like for you, that's okay. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says some familiar words here. Paul says in, in this chapter, he's, he's recounting the, the Lord's Supper, the night where Jesus had this final meal with his disciples. And he tells us first, before we get to this, to ensure that there's no unconfessed sin in my life. Is there anything that's separating you from God right now? Some sort of sin that you are holding on to, that you're keeping a tight grip on, where Jesus in this moment is saying, you know what, let that go. Take a moment and do that. Confess something that, man, 
you just refused to let go of. There's one thing that can separate you from Jesus on a regular basis, and that's the barrier of sin. But remember, on that cross, Jesus forgave that. We don't have to hold on to that anymore if we're Jesus followers. He said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess He's faithful and just, He'll forgive those sins instantly. They're gone. So take out that little piece of bread with me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, that Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. We're going to remember in this moment, here's what Jesus said, that this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take me. Just as we remember the broken body of Jesus, although scattered, we're still together in this moment. We also see in the next verse, verse 25, that in the same way Jesus took a cup after supper. And he said this that this cup is the new covenant. It means you don't have to adhere to any kind of, of Old Testament law or standard to get to, to God. God held up your end of the deal. When we couldn't pay for our sin, God took care of it. He paid our sin debt. This is the, the cup is the new covenant. He says, do this as often as you drink, whatever you have in this moment, as often as we do this, remember Jesus. Just drink. Friends, it's a simple reminder. That because of what Jesus has done for us, defeating the sin debt in which we couldn't defeat ourselves, inviting us into relationship with him, that I can trust him completely because Jesus is bigger, bigger and God is powerful. Let me pray for us as our worship team comes. Father, thanks for this time in your word, for the privilege we've had as a church body all over the place. God, to worship together, to hear your word together. Father, as we sing, I pray it's a sweet tune to heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, church family, we hope today's service was a blessing to you as we just seek to help you find and follow Jesus this week. Uh, we long for the day that we can all gather again in person and be here at the church together as, as Living Hope Columbus. If we can serve you anyway this week, please let us know through email, social media, and we hope you'll tune into some of the other opportunities we have available as well. We love you. We're here for you, here to serve you, and we'll see you soon. Hope you have a great rest of your week.